Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, December 19th. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our editor, David Horvitz, and health reporter, Nathan Jeff A. Hello to you both. Hey Amanda. Hello Amanda. Hi David. So good to see you. We'll hear from David about concerns over potential reforms to the law of return. And Nathan will share with us three game-changing pieces of research. But first, a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. David, last night was the first night of Hanukkah, and we spent it watching the World Cup in our house. I know most of my kids are now hoarse, can't speak at all, because it was the most dramatic game we've ever seen in our lives. So do you think that Israelis in general were invested in the World Cup as much as the Don family? (laughs) Uh, I think so. I think um, it worked out um, incredibly well for its Qatari hosts. Um, and if you didn't know that Lionel Messi was a genius, you'd think it had all been staged because, let's face it, uh, um, Argentina, the winners, their opening game was against Saudi Arabia. They lost to Saudi Arabia. In other words, an Arab team can say, hey, we, yeah, well, we lost to the winners. No big deal. It was hosted by Qatar, which, which owns the uh, French soccer club for whom Lionel Messi plays, as uh, it also um, um, hosts um, Mbappe, uh, France's most wonderful player as well. So that was like their... You know, not exactly local, but locally owned players uh, were clashing in this astonishing final. Um, and um, Amir of Qatar then got to drape a bisht, uh, an Arab cloak, over Lionel Messi's shoulders um, in, pre- in, in congratulating him and presenting him uh, after the incredible game. And then Messi is, you know, photographed in Arab garb, holding the World Cup aloft for the hundreds of millions or however many around the world to see. So incredibly good uh, for Qatar. It has to be said from the Israeli perspective, uh, a country that has no relations with Israel, that is very close to Hamas, uh, nonetheless uh, made sure that Israelis were able to come, uh, agreed to direct flights, uh, hosted in a a semi-official way, Israeli diplomats who were there in order to take care of any sort of diplomatic instance that might arise. Um, so from that point of view, you know, it was a, a cup that was genuinely open to Israeli fans. And the way it was seen here, I mean, the state broadcaster can, a mighty channel uh, with a lot of innovative and very creative programming um, and not as much viewership as it should have, uh, w- was staging the cup and, and showed it not only on television, but on the internet and so on. 
Um, it was on. It was available on, on the phone to watch via Can. You could listen to, to it on the radio. Uh, they did a very good job of showing it. They had a very good commentary team. They had lots of women uh, in their commentary team, uh, which is less remarkable than it would have been a few years ago, but still very fine. And of course, we have this this country that that has um, this mosaic of people uh, who are very passionate about being in Israel and very passionate about their football. Um, which you know I do have to call soccer, um, but resist you know when I can uh, manage. And and there are a lot of Argentinians in Israel, and Argentinians are very passionate about their soccer. And uh, they've they've just gone quiet now, but there was a, a group of people beneath my office window banging drums until about half a minute ago, uh, who I'll, I'm pretty sure are Argentinian supporters. Very big deal for the world. Very great success for its I, I would say incredibly wealthy and um, profoundly dubious uh, hosts. Uh, who allegedly bribed their way to hosting the tournament. And of course, we have a huge French immigrant population as well. And through our windows, we could hear our neighbors ooing and aahing with every goal or non-goal. Let's move on. Uh, As noted, last night was the first night of Hanukkah and Israel President Isaac Herzog sent a somewhat, I would call, coded speech to the diaspora. Let's hear a portion of it now. Shalom, sisters and brothers from all over the world, my friends. The Hanukkah story is all about people leaning into their own truth and inspiring each other to stay connected. Dear friends, this hour too brings with it its own challenges and its own calling. Within our Jewish family, we're all being asked to recall what keeps us whole and committed to our own common destiny. It's no secret that the recent elections in Israel have left many Jews around the world asking real questions about belonging with our own collective. David, what do you make of Herzog's words? Yeah, well, it's not coded. He's saying, I know that lots of you are pretty unhappy about what, what you're concerned might be unfolding in Israel. Um, I don't think it's surprising that he would acknowledge it. Um, I think it's perhaps surprising that he has not had more to say. He's, it's a very difficult position, being the president. It's essentially ceremonial. But he sets a tone. And uh, I suspect that uh, many of his predecessors would have been more outspoken at a time like this and um, perhaps saying more about the imperative to balance and and reconcile and continue to preserve uh, the foundational values of Israel as a Jewish and a democratic state. Uh, It's not the first time I've said this, that I think it's sort of a miracle that we've managed to. Um, And I think a lot of Israelis would look to the president to be robust uh, in, in setting out a vision where that is maintained. Um, both because it's uh, 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 true to our foundational purpose and because it's um, the formula by which Israel survives, survives in terms of international support, in terms of its connection to the Jewish people around the world, uh, in terms of, of the national sense of, of unity and, uh, and, and desire to ensure that this country continues to move ahead. So, yeah, it's good that he sent a message. I think he could afford to be a little stronger and a little more specific. Okay, we've spoken in the past about several looming uh potential legislation uh, measures that could change the face of Israeli democracy. One of them is, of course, a threat to the law of return. First of all, can you just tell our listeners what the law states now and and what could potentially be changed if the incoming Netanyahu coalition would get its way? Well, broadly speaking, the law of return makes the right to come and live and become a citizen in Israel available uh, automatically um, for Jews. Um, the the original law in 1950 didn't define who Israel considers to be a Jew. An amendment in 19 in 1970 
uh, grants immigration and citizenship rights to anyone with a Jewish grandparent. So there's this popular perception that it was a kind of response to the Nuremberg Laws, that if you were sufficiently Jewish for Hitler to come after you, uh, you should be sufficiently Jewish to, you know, to, for Israel to ensure that you can take refuge here. Uh, it didn't exactly play out like that, but the symbol- symbolism of, of that um, ostensible parallel is very powerful. And the fact is, of course, that, that Israel was, was not here <laughs> with, with the most tragic and terrible consequence uh, when millions of Jews in Europe needed a refuge, needed a, a, a land that would automatically and unthinkingly open its doors to them. We didn't have the state of Israel. It has served as a refuge ever since. Um, you know, that was not the end of its, of its refuge purpose uh, um, post-war. Jews were, were forced to leave, uh, fled, chose to leave, more often uh, um, forced, uh, from the Middle East and North Africa, um, partly in, in, in a sort of amid very bitter responses in the Arab world to the fact of Israel's survival of the War of Independence, its revival and its survival. But, and it's also been a refuge, you know, down the decades ever since, uh, including for Jews in civil war in, in Ethiopia and Jews from, you know, Western countries. Uh, one of the major components of Aliyah in, in recent years was from France. Now, now, some people were moving from France because of that uh, historic, miraculous opportunity we have in our lifetimes to make Aliyah by choice. But some moved here because they did not feel they could lead comfortably proud public Jewish lives. Uh, that's not the only uh, Western country from which there has been Aliyah. And we're actually living in a time of, of mounting anti-Semitism. The, the notion of Israel as, as a refuge for Jews, I think, is higher in the minds of, of many Jews than it was a few years ago around the world. And this, this Israel has to be welcoming to them and uh, a changing of the law of return. And specifically, uh, as has been suggested by some in the incoming coalition, the abolition of the grandchild clause or, or its amendment to the point where it's uh, uh, essentially not applying anymore um, seems to me to be tremendously misguided and a, and a, a sort of abandonment of, of an Israeli privilege and responsibility. Do you see this as a semi-racist measure? I mean, most of the people I would assume who are using this grandfather clause are from former Soviet Union countries or or countries in which uh, Judaism was uh, suppressed for uh, several generations. Do you think that the government itself is trying to do some kind of anti-Russian speaking measure? I don't think it's that, or it's that. that's not what it precisely is. I think it's a halachic monopoly measure. It's a function of a desire among Orthodox uh, legislators and the Orthodox Judaism, which is central to their lives, uh, to impose that on Israel in terms of state and citizenship purposes. And that's a point that's worth making very clear. Nobody who stands by the law of returns and its grandchild clause is seeking to meddle with halacha. Nobody's seeking to say, well, you don't think they're Jewish according to your rules, but we think they are Jewish according to your rules. No, uh, you, were, you are, however, Jewish according to your sense of belonging to the community and the, the, the widest definition, a definition that parallels the consequence to some extent that you um, pay as uh, for having thrown in your lot with the Jewish people. So, you know, if you're thinking about the former Soviet Union, uh, as someone put it to me, uh, you're, you're talking in some cases about uh, Jews who identify very strongly with the community, um, who consider themselves uh, much more Jewish than, say, Russian, who are considered by, by non-Jews around them to be much more Jewish than Russian, uh, with uh, whatever positives and negatives that creates for them and who want to come to Israel and are, and are potentially going to be told, no, actually, very sorry, you're more Russian than Jewish. You don't have a place here. 
Okay, David, thank you for that. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Nathan, I just love it that one of your recent pieces essentially makes my twice-weekly yoga classes a medical treatment. You brought us new Israeli research that spotlights major benefits of stress reduction measures specifically for women who are at elevated risk of cancer. So tell us more about what Dr. Shachar Lev-Ari of Tel Aviv University's medical school found. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic. Um, the nexus between kind of mental well-being and cancer. And I think that kind of many of us don't understand the extent to which kind of psychological barriers can actually hold back women who are at elevated risk of cancer from taking measures that they might need to take. Um, I have very personal experience of this, a, a good friend um who was aware of something on her breast but didn't get it checked out um, and unfortunately died of breast cancer. And other women who know they're at elevated risk, but the idea of having surgery to reduce their risk is a big psychological barrier. Now, what we saw was a piece of research um, that actually looks specifically at those women who know that genetically they have elevated risk. So they're very sure that their risk is elevated. They don't know the exact nature of their risk, but they know that it's elevated. Um, and as you can imagine, this brings an enormous amount of stress to life. Um, and also, this creates actual psychological barriers. When the stress is high, it's actually harder for those people to say, okay, we want to think clearly. We want to take surgery that might actually increase our life expectancy. This study, which uh, the piece is on the Times of Israel um, homepage, um, this study actually looked at what stress reduction measures can do and saw that there was a very profound effect when women at this elevated risk take stress reduction measures or stress management measures, um, that it can make them much more able to cope with kind of general aspects of life, but even makes them feel more able to take those big decisions, which might be a surgery to help uh, kind of reduce their risks. So really kind of a very profound piece of research, I think. And uh, the team behind the research says, okay, this, this kind of opens or encourages us to delve more into a topic, which is the kind of the need for psychological coaching and care when people are told, hey, you have that increased risk of breast cancer. Thanks for that. I think it comes as no surprise to any regular listener on to the podcast that Israel 
apparently has some 15% of the world's most influential studies on COVID vaccines. Were you shocked at all to find that we are leading or at least have a high proportion of the research here? I wasn't shocked to see how high the proportion was. What we're talking about is 15% of kind of the top most cited vaccine COVID studies uh, are originating from Israeli authors. I think that's an amazingly impressive figure. Didn't surprise me so much given that Israel was such a leader um, in COVID vaccine research. We started vaccinating very early, very quickly. We were kind of known as the vaccination nation. What did surprise me was the actual volume of research that we were producing. I knew it was high. I didn't realize it was this high. If you average it out, it's averaging kind of four peer-reviewed studies per week through the pandemic, four peer-reviewed studies per week for a small country with few universities, few teaching hospitals. That's really astounding. It really is. And finally, a last piece of research from Tel Aviv University that just really, to me, seems like something out of a Marvel movie. Israeli scientists say they have found a way to boost the ability of bones to heal themselves so they can self-repair big defects with a gel. Now, I suppose a cast is a way to repair tiny defects, right? So what is this gel meant to do? Yeah, so the way that bone repair works in humans or indeed in animals is that bones are kind of programmed to be able to fix themselves when there is a small fracture. When we talk about a broken arm or a broken leg, um, you know, we see somebody with this big cast on their arm. But what we're actually talking about is a, a very tiny fracture. It could still be very painful and very serious, but a very small fracture. When people have a bigger amount, amount of bone missing, sometimes that's after um, a cancer operation, sometimes that's a dental issue, um, bone can't actually regenerate itself over a large area. Um, and what this research has shown um, through an animal study so far, is that if you produce the right gel, a gel, which is a water-based gel, it can actually trick the body into thinking that the gap is smaller because the gel, in a sense, kind of fills up the gap. I'm very simplifying it. Um, the link to the actual peer-reviewed research is in our article. Um, but it kind of tricks the body and the immune system into thinking that the gap is much smaller and tells the bone, hey, you can do it. You can regrow over this larger area. So there's a long way to go on this research, but they've proved the proof of concept with animals and are very excited to kind of bring it to humans. How long do you think it'll take until humans will be able to, what, do you drink this gel? Is it injected? What would happen here? No, it's, it's injected into the into the area of the bone where you're actually missing bone. Um, and I think it, it has quite a long path to go. We're talking about several years. But who knows, it could be a real, a real help to a lot of people. Really fantastic. Nathan and David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Take care. Have a great Hanukkah. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.